Hello. Welcome to the Oxford Anthropology Podcast. You're listening. You're listening to the Oxford Anthropology, Anthropology Podcast. Podcast. To the Oxford Anthropology Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Oxford Anthropology Podcast. I'm Lan Duo, a DPhil candidate specializing in contemporary well-being in metropolitans. In today's episode, we are delighted to have Dr. Diana Vonek from the University of Stirling to share her extensive and thought-provoking research on state and civic actors in Ukraine's wartime heritage work. Having dedicated eight years to this topic and carried on her fieldwork throughout, Dr. Vonek reflects on how socio-historical events impact the definition, preservation, and sometimes neglect of cultural heritage. Her insights are invaluable for those interested in cultural heritage works in Ukraine and beyond. Enjoy. That. The paper I will deliver today builds on a long sequence of uh, fieldwork that I've conducted in Ukraine over the course of the last eight years. Um, it will most heavily build on emerging material from the past nearly two years of Russia's full-scale war against Ukraine, uh, specifically four months of uh, in-person fieldwork that I conducted in in a series of shorter trips, interviewing heritage professionals and most prominently uh, professionals in the museum sector and uh, municipal organizations. Um, this was supplemented by online interviews and participant observation in webinars, conferences, uh, meetings uh, of heritage professionals ac across different uh, national and international alliances um, and institutional constellations. Um, and in the summer, I spent three months of in-person fieldwork in Central and Eastern Europe, specifically in Austria, Poland, Estonia, and Latvia, where I met officials from ministries of culture, from national heritage associations, from uh, individual museums, municipal authorities. So broadly speaking, again, the heritage representatives of the heritage sector that uh, mobilized in support of the of their Ukrainian colleagues, uh, and I've been trying to map out the main logistical and institutional chains through which help is organized, uh, trying to understand the bottlenecks, uh, trying to understand the political economy of all of it, and the discourses, of course, that uh, that inform this mobilization, which differ, as you might imagine in neighboring countries um, and in Western Europe or in international organizations like the EU or UNESCO. Uh, I've been trying to trace all of this uh, and connect it to this emerging picture that I've acquired from Ukrainian heritage professionals, trying to see how help is distributed across Ukraine, across different institutional scales, how the fate of more prestigious, uh, better recognized heritage uh, organizations or sites differ from more remote, less prestigious, slightly more marginalized uh, institutions and professionals and trying to understand 
uh, how to improve the system. This is part of a partially applied research project that I currently work on. This is a joint programming initiative, a European Union scheme where um, in a consortium of three universities we are trying to map this this whole infrastructure of uh, support and care in the in this sector um, and eventually we are developing policy recommendations for the EU on this basis. I'm stressing this because I think some of this policy uh, thinking of course goes against the the strictly um, analytical questions uh, that that I would have. I'm trying to um, open it out and, and connect it back to this broader, more theoretical picture. But um, the agenda of this current work that I've done is, uh, is a bit more fast-paced and it, in a way it, I think, mirrors the urgency of the, of, of the events that we are witnessing. Uh, the materials that I will broadly build on come from around a year and a half of ethnographic fieldwork um, that I've conducted in Ukraine, mostly in Lviv, um, in a city in western Ukraine. This is really close to the Polish border. I first spent a year there, and then in shorter installments, I spent around half a year there and in Kiev, the capital, uh, between 2015 and, and 2021, possibly even more. Um, I, I'm not sure because Although I spent most of my time there uh, as a PhD student and then, then as a postdoctoral researcher, uh, I also spent quite a substantial amount of time working in exactly the kind of EU grants that I also studied as an anthropologist. So I'm bringing a, a kind of dual perspective to this material, for better or worse. You will tell me <laughs> whether it's for better or worse. Um, and. I think although these were not uh, formal fieldwork opportunities, uh, they definitely shaped very substantially how I look at my own material and how I retrospectively was able to, to rethink my materials. What I'm trying to do with all of this is uh, developing it into a book project that on the one hand looks at the changing role of the state um, in Ukraine, through this lens of, of heritage management and heritage preservation. And on the other hand, it tries to say um, something about the heritage industry and the expansion of the heritage industry that I think has, has, a, has something significant to tell us about the post-industrialist urban uh, transformations across Europe. And the perspective of political economy that I adopt is not something that we see very commonly applied to this even now with the, of course, the fast expansion of the literature and both anthropology and sociology of, of um, cultural heritage. So why do I think that heritage is an interesting angle to look at war and state transformation and revolution? I came to look at heritage, to focus on heritage, because I was interested in, in understanding what happens when large transformative socioeconomic processes change not only social relations but also how uh, the discourse around the past and the present um, is organized and uh, i am from hungary so it's a neighboring country of ukraine and i grew up in exactly with this post-cold war 
transformation that we might stop calling post-Cold War, I think. And so this was, uh, this was the story that uh, occupied very much my mind as I, as I started to think about the society around me before I became an anthropologist. And I, I just emphasize this because I think this is an optic that I brought to Ukraine uh, that arguably changed how, what, what was important for me to understand as opposed to someone who didn't spend uh, their non-professional life in such, in such an environment. So heritage, if you think about its everyday meaning, uh, would refer to objects, practices, and knowledge that uh, sustain cultural words across generations. But if you think about the globalized institutional framework that deals with the recognition and the management of heritage, then heritage also should be described as a, as a form of governance. The, this infrastructure is linked to the post-war, post-Second World War UN system, specifically UN agencies like UNESCO, and as such, nation states are its basic units. Because nation states are so integral to the functioning of this system, transformations, rapid change, like the dissolution of the USSR and Ukrainian independence, are crucial points that have very strong implications to what, what counts as heritage, what sort of recognition it has, uh, and how it is dealt with. Uh, nomination processes for world heritage status are always uh, initiated by the nation state, again, for better or worse. Significant critique has been articulated because of the marginalization of minority heritage, indigenous uh, heritage, and so on and so on. And there is an emerging framework that looks at heritage through a discourse of human rights that, that has questioned this hegemonic logic of uh, the UNESCO-driven world heritage system, but it has not undone it. The UNESCO-led industry that is both um, a hospitality industry and it's also part of a broader white-collar economy uh, tied to very gentrification-heavy urban development is something that arguably has shaped our cities across the globe in a really significant fashion. Nation states are embedded in this process. And because of this, uh, when I started to work on this uh, topic nine years ago, I thought that, uh, that heritage offers a good angle, a good entry point into understanding these broader processes of, of uh, socioeconomic change. What's important here is also that the state does not only have monopoly in the international arena, but also has monopoly over the recognition uh, and management of heritage inside the nation state. So it creates and maintains a hierarchy of recognition. And uh, obviously, I don't want to say that heritage does not exist with outside of the system of recognition, but obtaining this uh, official status and the regulatory devices that come with it or the potential resources that come with it is crucial in uh, the fate of any site or practice or form of knowledge that 
is described by communities or, or by states as, as, as heritage. As I said it already, the, what we consider heritage expanded enormously in the past roughly 30, 40 years. Heritage in, in the way we know it today is a, is a part of a very Eurocentric uh, form of post-enlightenment modernity. It essentially appoints the state as a custodian of what is described as a shared inheritance, but the paradoxical nature of it is that it's, it starts from a very upper class uh, concern monuments and estates and things like that uh, in the late 19th century. And from this, it expands gradually into vernacular architecture, into movable property, into intangible heritage, into assemblies where uh, natural and cultural heritage are brought together. So basically there is a, an ever-growing class base of it and, and uh, ever diverse forms. And um, it is linked, I think, to this expansion, the, ex the extent to which we see it as, a, as an economic asset. Even actors like the World Bank have started to recognize cultural heritage not just cultural, but mostly cultural heritage in their lending practices. So, and, and this is, of course, again, because of, uh, of heritage being a driving fa factor in, in a certain kind of urban transformation, not just urban, but urban transformations, I think, are, are the, where it's the most spectacular. And so when I, when I went to Ukraine um, to look at what happened since the late 70s, I've done archival research and I've done um, ethnographic research. I was interested in this expansion, this late Soviet expansion of this infrastructure in a very different economic context, in a planned economy. What happened to it, not only with the dissolution of that polity within which it emerged, so the independence of Ukraine and the collapse of the federal state of the, of the USSR, but also I was interested in this historical nexus, basically, whereby the independence of Ukraine, this rapid change coincides with this global story of the expansion of heritage and the inclusion of heritage into this sort of gentrification-driven white-collar urban development everywhere in the world, but very heavily in Europe. So what's interesting, I think, about the so-called collapse of the USSR is that all of our everyday metaphors collapse this solution. They suggest a, a sort of significant break and that the, the, the implication of this language is, is that something, something very rapid happens, something very irre irreversible happens. I don't think this metaphor describes accurate, accurately what happened, either in terms of the institutional structures or the personnel that uh, works in this sector. While in many countries um, in the Warsaw Pact in the 1990s, we see a very fast infl influx of foreign capital privatization efforts that are often pushed through programs that, that are delivered by foreign experts. It's a sort of geopolitical alignment that takes place, takes place really fast and it comes with a very rapid institutional change in, in the public sector. In Ukraine and in many other 
former constituent republics of the USSR. What we have instead is a process of legal and institutional uncertainty for quite a few years. Specifically in Ukraine, what we see is that, and I follow here the political scientist Paul Danieri, who says that in a way the reform program of the perestroika in, in the last six years of the USSR that was initiated by Gorbachev um, was something that threatened hardliners in the Communist Party. It threatened the nomenclatura. And in many constituent republics, including Ukraine, these hardliners were very much um, pushed. They essentially chose uh, to back independence as a way of avoiding certain pressures of the perestroika. So what you have is a strong democratic opposition movement coming into a really uncomfortable alliance in the parliament with these old nomenclatura, these old uh, party leadership. And we, we have a, a period of sort of five, six years when uh, there's no new constitution. The whole legal framework is, is a mess. And there is very quick and very deep uh, economic crisis all over the former Soviet Union, definitely also in, in Ukraine. The division of the executive power between the, the president, the prime minister, and the parliament is not clear in this initial period at all. And uh, what we see is that there is this gradual expansion of uh, an oligarchic concentration of power, in the, especially in the very capital-heavy sectors, but the deregulation that we see in neighboring countries like Poland or the Czech Republic or Hungary, Slovakia, they, they don't take place quite as much in Ukraine. Instead, you have these former elites like the heads of state enterprises that are often called the red directors, party bureaucrats, state security personnel taking um, a lead in this violent and really fast privatization. And that leaves the country with a very high inequality and a very strongly weakened social state. But it's not just the social state that gets weakened, but uh, public services in general. And what happens to the cultural sector and the heritage sector specifically is that the old institutional structures survive. There is no comprehensive reform to change how they function, what they are, what kind of jobs are available in them but they are not funded anymore. The budgets are cut, often the salaries are cut or just not paid for, for half a year even. And so basically they can't fulfill their mandate. This is a, this is a very heavy crisis in, throughout this sector. So it's restoration uh, bureaus, it's the architecture offices or cultural offices and city councils in the regional administrations, this is museums, this is pretty much the entire sector. And um, this is not something that's completely new. So what's important to, to look at, I think, here, and it will have relevance in the ongoing war, is that although we see uh, an expansion in the 70s of the Soviet cultural heritage infrastructure, it, has not, it had not been the case that this infrastructure had sustainable and um, predictable funding, even in those decades. Because 
how it worked is that heritage was not part, if, if you designated an area within the Soviet economy as a heritage reserve area, that area was not part of the planned economy in the sense that it did not have to fulfill any production quotas. It was taken out of the planned economy. Because of this, it, not, it did not have any lobbying power when it came to discussions around local and regional budgets. It was something that was always um, overshadowed by the interests of the state enterprises that were running the show in pretty much all of these cities. So what you see is a gradual dilapidation of this infrastructure, even as museums are open, even as there is uh, increased attention and sort of acceptance of the past that before had not really been prominent in, in, in the history of the Soviet Union, it does not come with budgets that, that enable uh, proper maintenance. So this, in a sense, I think even with the expansion, what we can see is, is decades long, at least a stagnation, followed by this radical crisis in the 90s. What do people do? The officials that I, that I did life history interviews with uh, in Lviv in 2015 talked about essentially trying to collapse this really vertical, very centralized uh, apparatus. What they tried to do was to redesignate large parts of the city into a locally managed reserve. So while before, what be this is the current, the yellow things are the current uh, UNESCO World Heritage Site in, in Lviv, and the blue is the extended area that is under municipal protection. The yellow is also the, the, is the same territory that was protected within the Soviet um, era um, system. And the blue is the expansion that these local municipal professionals claimed in the very early 90s. What they did was de facto they took it out of, the, or they tried to take it out of the um, of this vertical that is managed by the Ministry of Culture, and they try to essentially claim manage managerial um, monopoly over it. Now, this is this is reflective of this really hierarchical, really vertical um, system that they perceived uh, hindered local decision making. This is something that was that reached all the way up to Moscow when the Soviet Union still existed, and it definitely still reached all the way up to Kiev um, after 1991. And uh, um, taking it was, they, they basically said that they, it was a bet on their side, um, that if, if they de facto start to manage it, the state will basically not come back and take that right away. So in a sense, we can say that the state in those, in those years did not have enough power to um, to maintain its monopoly over heritage. That central state did not have proper executive power, if you want to read it like that. Um, and instead, there is a challenge that comes from in a, in a sort of bottom-up way. Um, and these people say, no, this is the polity that elects us. We represent this polity. And this is very different from the composition of the parliament. This is true. The regional variations uh, are really significant in, in, in Ukraine in terms of um, uh, voting. 
So they say, okay, we are uh, this democratic opposition, the nationalist democratic opposition that has taken the majority um, regionally. This is not reflected by the by the central state. The central state anyway does not have the power, the resources, the, and the political will to uh, give us adequate support if we bring it under local municipal control then if we increase our tax revenues or something like that we will have more executive power over running it so that is that is the logic i'm telling this story it's a very old story it's a 30 year old story why i'm telling it is because it prefigures a lot of what we see later on when i started doing ethnographic fieldwork in the aftermath of the Maidan revolution in Ukraine. So there was already uh, war in the eastern borders. Um, so when it, it was already war, and this, of course, changed the stakes of cultural politics and heritage politics as well. Uh, and what I could see very strongly was uh, a sort of attempt of uh, local professionals, whether they were in, based in NGOs or in, in um, offices of the local state or wherever, there was an attempt to uh, bypass the, the central state because the central state still did not have much to offer in terms of uh, either funding or, or even the kind of professional presence that they, they would need to make uh, decisions. They would need, for example, if, it's a, if, if a building in the UNESCO uh, World Heritage Site was to be renovated, uh, because it's a, a site of national significance, it has to be um, okayed by the central state, which is usually, it, it usually comes with uh, visits from staff from the Ministry of Culture and things like that. These processes are really quite cumbersome. They often get halted midway. And uh, people in the local state, in the municipal offices, were growing increasingly frustrated with what they perceived was the, the kind of um, sabotaging of their work. And instead, they started to look elsewhere. And this is where the, the expansion of the European cultural diplomacy sector, if we want to interpret it like that, or es essentially European funds and institutional presence started to be much more prominent in, in, in Ukraine and this and Western Ukraine and with it Lviv was one of the frontiers of this change. So what you would see is that um, projects like uh, the from 2009 onwards, Ukraine was uh, eligible for the EU's Eastern Partnership funds. All of these grant schemes like Horizon 2020, Creative Europe, the Polish Ministry of Culture had several projects. Lviv used to be part of Poland for several centuries. So obviously there is a, there is a geopolitical angle to this. Um, funds from Germany, funds from, from Austria. So basically regional funding started to be available in, in a way that's not uncomparable to uh, what had been the case in the, in the 90s. And people in these uh, local offices started to increasingly rely on this as a way to circumvent, bypass, or sometimes pressure the local, the, the central state. So what you see is, is that this is, of course, something that changes the, the power balance between um, you know, who gets to do what. 
it pushes the, the significance and the presence of civil society organizations or public-private partnerships. This comes with skills, including uh, language skills. This comes with uh, new professional orientations. I think one of the understudied aspects of these kinds of transformations, like the collapse of the USSR, is that your previous orders of legitimation, your previous networks, get become, if not immediately um, worthless, that they then at least uh, marginal compared to what the, the current valuable type of knowledge and connections are. So what you see is a really fast transformation where in the course of a generation or two um, at most, there's a turnaround. Instead of those previous connections towards St. Petersburg or Moscow, what you have now is connections uh, to Krakow, to uh, Warsaw, Vienna, Berlin, Brussels, and so on and so on. And this is, of course, something that's reflected in what is considered good restoration or good management, what kind of practices are favored. This, of course, links Ukraine into this broader transformation of, uh, of heritage management towards a much more community-driven grassroots enterprise than what it had been when it was all about monument conservation in, in the 70s and the 80s. Lviv is interesting because this is where it has happened in the most prominent and spectacular way. It's not the only place where it happened. With this, I want to come to um, the years that precede the current full-scale war. Because Ukraine sort of recovered economically by the early 2000s, but by the time it properly recovered, the world financial crisis hit. Uh, by the time that was over, there was uh, the Maidan revolution and the war started, which was a huge drain on, um, on, on the economy with two million. Sometimes uh, it's estimated there is two and a half million, I don't know the exact number, uh, of uh, people displaced and, uh, and uh, half a million uh, people going through the army in the course of in the course of the next eight years. So this is, this is a huge blow for the Ukrainian state. And you see these kind of uh, cycles of, of uh, the state building institutional capacity trying to, to enact reforms. Like there was a, a, a strong attempt at the decentralization reform after the Maidan. But there's always uh, some sort of crisis that, that halts that. Um, and so what you see long term is a protracted crisis, a, a, a sort of multi-generational precarity in all of these public cultural institutions. And because of that, a huge dependency on uh, either, either foreign funding or um, civic fundraising or whatever other means that could essentially take off some of the state's uh, burdens. This is... This is um, I think illustrated really well by what happened when the war broke out in the Donbass. Uh, there were several museums and libraries, archives that were occupied, then deoccupied. And of course, the Ministry of Culture at that point said, okay, we have to do something. We have to um, assess the risk of escalation and figure out what kind of responses we would have if there is an escalation. 
For this, they, they organized a small group that was a, a sort of reformist faction uh, in, in, in the ministry that went around and was trying to understand what was happening on the ground. It was a kind of field expedition in, in these um, regions. But again, they faced basically the same problem that their Soviet era predecessors were facing, their uh, colleagues in the 90s were facing. There was no way to pressure the, the state into changing the budget for culture. There was no way to be um, to install things like um, cars that would be ready to evacuate collections in case of an escalation, or even just ha having packaging materials uh, that you need uh, for something like this. So what happened is that it was left to um, museum directors or library directors' own discretion to find the funds to do something. There were uh, training sessions organized. There, were there was communication from the ministry that, that requested lists of uh, objects, that the priority lists of objects that would need to be evacuated in case of an escalation. But these are all measures that could be characterized as cheap. Uh, they were all things you can do without funds. They were never interventions that were centralized and, and uh, budgeted in, in that way. So the responsibility gets individualized and gets pushed down on the one hand, but on the other hand, it also stays with the central state in the sense that when disaster happens, uh, they will be accountable for not um, fulfilling their mandate, which is something that we see a lot right now. Um, so there was a, from spring 2021 all the way to the full-scale invasion, there was this protracted uh, buildup of Russian troops along the border. And there was a lot of uncertainty, especially in the last three months. There was a lot of uncertainty about what kind of escalation will happen when. Uh, there was no communication in the level of ministers and vice ministers. This is what I know for sure. Of course, there might have been something more uh, something clearer in the in the presidential office, but already not in the ministerial level. And because of that, when people would be calling, asking whether they need to prepare, how, and so on and so on, this was not really de dealt with in a in a sort of centralized um, fashion. There was no policy to be uh, prepared. People didn't want to incite panic. This is not unique to Ukraine. As far as I could see, parallel cases of war starting all over the place in. Um, in uh, Iraq, in Afghanistan, in uh, Yemen. I, I checked these cases. I checked also uh, different European countries uh, as they entered the Second World War. Um, this is always the case that there is this discourse around if avo avoiding panic. And because of that, there is often a lack of communication of, of uh, security threats. So institutions are often left with this kind of uh, um, improvisatory measures. And so a lot of these, these people, these professionals in leadership positions that I spoke to reported that there was maybe communication along the lines of do prepare your priority list, do know how and what to evacuate. Um, but there was often a discourse that would discourage people from dismantling connection, uh, collections, for example, or packing away uh, books prior to the invasion because because it was in a sense I think it's um, it's about not being able to afford risks. 
in many, many um, sense of, of the terms. What you see here, I think, is, is that with the, with the individualization of, of this, with this sort of pushing down the risk while keeping the centralized structures, bureaucratic structures, people are between a rock and a hard place. They, if they evacuate um, at that point, they often have to do it without adequate equipment or without um, legal backup. Um, if they don't, then they are also held resp responsible. It's a kind of really difficult situation to, to be in. And this is where I'd like to come back to this question of what the state is and what it does and the division of labor between, between them and, and others. What's really interesting, I think, is that um, Ukraine, because of the experience of the, of the Maidan revolution in, in 2013-14, had very recent experience of fast, spontaneous civic mobilization. There were millions of people participating, especially in the middle class, but not only um, in that revolution. Um, and, and in the aftermath of that, when it turned out that the Ukrainian army was not prepared uh, lacked the funds to equip the soldiers that were, or the volunteer fighters that were going to the Donbas war, which was then called the anti-terrorist operation. Many, many people came together and, and uh, founded um, smaller or bigger civil society organizations that, uh, that set out to fill these gaps that the state could not fill. This experience in the military, in and around the military, is something that was most prominent in, in that sector and also in, in the, to a lesser extent in, in the help organized for displaced people. But in 2022, with a full-scale invasion, this is the kind of experience that um, became the model of mobilization, civic mobilization on all fronts. And why this is interesting is because although the state retains the monopoly over recognizing, managing, um, heritage and, and so on and so on, uh, they not only lack the resources, human resources and financial resources, but they also are, they also are operating according to a really complex, tight and cumbersome bureaucracy that is not designed to be able to respond fast enough with the speed of the ground offensive, if I may say uh, that way. So, um, by the time you, need, you get your permit to move your collection, which is always from the central state, you are possibly already occupied. This is uh, cases, again, in my interviews, this, this has come up a lot, that uh, essentially this was one of the bottlenecks. What happens is a, is a very specific and interesting form of mobilization, which is I don't think it should be described as civil society mobilization in the usual way. And, um, and the reason for that is because, at least in the heritage sector, because you need to cooperate with the state, the people who end up uh, running the most successful um, initiatives are state employees, so heads of archives or museum directors or people in, in, in similar positions, often even um, officials in territorial administration or something like that. So they would establish a small NGO and the personal overlap, so the fact that they are both public sector employees and 
civil society leaders, that ensures um, the smooth, relatively smooth cooperation between state and, and non-state actors. What do I mean by this? For example, if you are um, a school, public theater, a museum, a library, you cannot receive funding from, let's say, a foreign, foreign uh, civil society or even a foreign state actor or UNESCO or wherever, you can't receive that funding in a relatively easy and straightforward fashion. It takes weeks, sometimes months, to get it through the system. And, um, and how you can spend it is really heavily curtailed by the fact that you are a public organization and how you operate is under very strong public scrutiny embedded in a very complicated bureaucracy. Um, so what you, what you then have is that de facto, um, the NGO or the, um, or the charitable organization that is set up by people who are already in these uh, state organizations becomes the agile part uh, of, the, of the institution that can participate in this sort of fast decision making and uh, can take funds, can pay out funds, can operate, can procure, for example, boxes or or vehicles quickly. You can't do that if you're if you're not not like that. But because of the personal overlap, there is a direct communication, and this is the kind of mobilization that I find the most typical. And I've I've been thinking a lot about um, <laughs> a sort of adequate way of of framing this. And um, what's specific about it is that it's a, it's a professional-led, professional-driven uh, mobilization, but it is still a grassroots mobilization. It does, in a sense, supplement the state's work. In a, in a sense, it acts also as, as um, a series of, or, or, or a matrix of watchdog organizations that puts increasing pressure on the state um, figuring out what, to what extent they do their job when they don't do their job. There is a, they, they push for increasing transparency. They push for more accountability in, in these processes. But at the same time, they can't do their work without the state. They can't do their work without receiving these permits, without um, essentially getting green light. This is a wartime phenomenon, but this is not, um, not something that's unique to to this war. This is something that we see, obviously, in, in other countries as well, in non-war contexts as well. And I think it's, uh, it's, it tells us something about bureaucracy in general and how bureaucracies could maybe uh, um, changed to take off some of the burden from um, state decision making in these contexts where fast action is, is needed. Um, it's also something that um, that comes with a, a sort of competition that is often really it, it's often um, full of frictions because um, states need these funds, states need the foreign funding. This is especially on the higher level, like for example, UNESCO support or um, the EU as an intergovernmental actor they would often first come to nation states. But recognizing what is happening, what we see is also a quite unprecedented change in this. So what you see is, um, is that intergovernmental actors like the EU or large actors like nation states increasingly look at 
alternatives to state parties. In, this, in the context of this war, one such example is that instead of working with the Ukrainian state, um, in the very first month of the war, the EU gave uh, 2 million euros to a foundation called Alif, which is a, a, an international NGO that was established in response to the war in uh, Iraq and in, in Syria. They act very fast. They, this is basically their specialty of appearing on the ground, immediately distributing funds without these, uh, this, this kind of bureaucracy, bureaucratic um, measures that would be typical of, of um, state actors. And um, they were there on the ground in Ukraine before larger uh, organizations like UNESCO or World Monument Fund or other, other bigger actors um, appeared. And I think this, I don't know if this is a tendency, but what you, what you see through this, I think is, a, um, is this larger change or this kind of, in a sense, I think this, this um, crisis in, the, in how the heritage sector in, or is organized globally uh, and this tension between state-led institutional forms and, and, um, and modus operandi um, and towards a, a more direct, often community-driven um, other vision of, of uh, dealing with this. I don't think that this is a question of good and bad. Um, this is a question where you see basically this clashing. The Ukrainian state was, of course, uh, very indignant about this, but because they themselves are in a dependent position uh, in the war economy, unable to get the resources for culture that uh, they would need to operate to fulfill their mandate. In a sense, they are in a weak position. They couldn't contest this. And on the images, um, I have this picture from also from Lviv. This is the organization Museum Crisis Center that was set up by a museum director to provide help to mostly smaller local and regional museums. And there on the map, you can see how many museums they support in each of these, in each of the regions, each of the counties in Ukraine. And um, by now, I think they, uh, they are somewhere around 200,000 euros of uh, uh, aid distributed. This is often even humanitarian aid, just food and uh, hygiene products to museum professionals because the, the, often the, the daily survival of, of people in closer to the front line is just not insured at all. Uh, and sometimes it's, um, it's equipment for evacuations and, and uh, for the preservation of or dismantling of, of uh, collections. So this is one of the examples of, of this, this organization type that I, I've um, discussed. Um, so yeah, this is what I think I need to theorize a little bit better and to understand how to reconcile the role of expert communities and, uh, and expert networks with this broader picture of grassroots mobilization and how all of this ultimately provides a sort of challenge and help simultaneously to the functioning of the say, a state. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Oxford Anthropology Podcast. For more episodes, visit podcast.ox.ac.uk.
www.anthropologyradio.co.uk or find us on Apple Podcast Audio.